When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Last night, Anderson Cooper and I hosted a live televised town hall on CNN. We talked to health experts and CNN reporters about the novel coronavirus, answering questions from audience members and viewers around the world. It was a terrific discussion, and I want to share a few excerpts with you. I want to bring in uh, Ron Klain, the Ebola response coordinator under President Obama and co-host of a new podcast called Epidemic about the coronavirus. Uh, And also Dr. Craig Spencer, who contracted Ebola in 2014 after treating patients in West Africa. He's now the director of global health and emergency medicine at the Columbia University Medical Center. Thanks, guys, so much for being with us. Thank you. Dr. Spencer, let me let me uh, ask you, you you were the first person in New York to be to actually contract the Ebola virus. Mm -hmm. How, How are you doing? Feel great. You, you totally Never better. Better, yeah. Hundred percent. That's yeah. that's good to hear. Thanks, Russ. Uh, what what uh, when you look at the response back then, 2014? How do you compare it to what's happening now? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, in 2014, after I survived Ebola, I went back uh, to Guinea to work as an epidemiologist to understand more about the disease, and I ended up writing a piece, really expressing my concern about how the political response had really taken priority over the public health response. Mm. And I think that's incredibly important and salient right now. People need clear, concise, evidence-based messaging. They need to understand when testing is happening, who can get tested, what is their risk. And right now, I think people have this disconnect between what they're hearing from public health authorities and what they're hearing by a tweet. And I think it's causing a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, a lot of hysteria, which is reminiscent of what we saw in 2014 and 2015. So, so is there something you'd recommend that's being, that be done differently? Yeah, well, I think my big message is proactive preparedness should take precedence over this reactive catch-up every single time. As Ron pointed out, we knew months ago that there was a problem that was likely going to come here and spread. Over the past couple of years, we've really torn apart the architecture of our pandemic response here in the U.S. We've proposed lower funding to the CDC. We've ended great pandemic preparedness programs like PREDICT which was helping us to find zoonotic diseases in places where these viruses are more likely to come and and to spread from. And I think that we just haven't taken the right time. We haven't taken the right preparation. We need to be as serious about preparation and preparedness as we are about response. You know, I've looked at the modeling in this country, uh, just the the overall flu response, pandemic flu response, and and we put, put up these numbers. But even in a moderate scenario, what they say is that a million hospitalizations, 200,000 people would need to be in the intensive care unit, and 64,000 people would need breathing machines. We, we don't have all that. Yeah. We have maybe just barely that, and, and many of those ventilators and breathing machines are currently being used. And what, what, what are we going to do if, if that many people actually need care like that? 
Sanjay, it's a great question, and it's the second area where the response thus far has been laggard. So testing's one area, but getting our healthcare system ready for this influx of cases is something we should be doing now. We saw in China they, they built temporary hospitals. They really flexed up their capacity. And I think this is a point we all need to think about. It's not just the people who get coronavirus who are going to be affected by this. If hospital emergency rooms are overwhelmed, if doctors and nurses treating those people get sick and staffing drops at our hospitals, if we don't have enough beds, people with other illnesses won't be able to get into the hospital and get treatment. You know, people with routine medical conditions won't be able to get treatment. So the possible impact on our healthcare system is something we should be using this time while cases ramp up to really get ready for. And I think that's a big deficiency. Is it possible that this will just dissipate in April, (laughs) like the president had indicated early on? And I'm not asking to bash the president. I'm asking just, I mean, there are viruses which in warmer weather do not do well and and, Mm -hmm. anticipate it becomes seasonal. Is that going to happen here? There are a lot of unknowns. But I think uh, you can't run government policy on hopes and wishes. What the public deserves is a health care system and a government that's powering that system that's preparing, maybe not for the worst case scenario, but for the medium case scenario that Dr. Gupta just outlined. That's a pretty likely scenario, and it's just the responsible thing to be ready for. If it surprises on the upside, then we're all better off. And we can focus on Craig's point, which is preparing for the long run. Whatever happens with this one, this isn't the last time we're going to do this. You guys will be doing this two years or three years from now when we have the next one. And we shouldn't be catching up then. We should be ahead of the game. And and investments in responding to this are preparedness also for the next time we go through this. Ron Clay and Craig Spencer, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And joining Sanjay and me right now is Dr. Seema Yasmin. She's director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative as well as a former disease detective at the Centers for Disease Control. What are you most closely sort of monitoring right now about this virus? So there's a lot of talk about the pathogen itself, but the thing that I study is the concurrent spread of rumors and misinformation. You need to be really clear here that disease is not the only thing that spreads. You also get rumors and health hoaxes, misinformation, and emotional contagion as well. So one person What's emotional gets, contagion? It's when one person gets anxious and starts panicking, and then you pick up on that, and then you get panicky. Mm. And Sanjay next to you is like, why is Anderson scared? I better be scared too. That kind of stuff is I'm really, usually the one that gets scared first. It, go, it goes that yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that can be really dangerous because mm. that can help the virus itself get a handle. People can stop acting so rationally, start acting from a place of fear, and be more susceptible to the misinformation that spreads. And I want to say WHO is doing fantastic work, needs a lot more support, but we do need public health agencies around the world to realize that disease is not the only thing that spreads. Misinformation is contagious too. We have to take that seriously. Let's get some questions from the audience and from folks at home. Uh, This is Alejandra Villanueva. She's a master's, getting a master's of public health at Columbia University. Hey, welcome. What's your question? Hi. My question is, does the coronavirus change or mutate and could it it affect a person more than once? Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll be able to take that. We've looked into this a bit. It's very interesting. First of all, this coronavirus likely jumped from animals to humans. In order for that to do that, it actually probably mutated at some point in order for that to happen. And then as it starts to spread through humans, it does continue to mutate somewhat. We know, for example, this patient in Washington, the first patient that was diagnosed in this country, they looked at the, the, the genome of that patient's coronavirus and they tried to match it 
to subsequent infections, and they found there was a lot of similarities, but in fact the virus does continue to mutate. What we don't know uh, is whether or not it mutates into something that is more problematic or less problematic. Interesting point, Anderson, I heard that um, uh, viruses, you know, they, they don't want to kill their hosts. Mm. I, I don't want to assign a virus a personality, but as, as a general thing, it, it, they, they want to keep their hosts alive. So oftentimes they'll mutate into something that's less lethal if they do mutate. But, but just to be clear, if somebody uh, gets sick with a virus, gets over it, yeah. uh, is negative, do we know... Can they then get it again? Are they immune for a couple months or years? Is it known? I mean, this is an open, a little bit of an open question, but I did ask Dr. Fauci this. Yeah. Uh, we were at the White House uh, a few weeks ago. It's interesting because we, we don't know for sure. The general thing is once you're uh, infected, you, it's kind of like getting vaccine, vaccinated. Right. You know, your, your body's vaccinated. This virus, he believes, should behave the same way. There have been some reports around the world where people have become infected more than once. Mm. But sometimes that might just be a testing issue more than the fact that the virus has actually changed so much. Okay. I want to introduce everybody to, um, uh, to Adam Whalen. Um, I, I can't even say exactly what you are. You are so smarter than me. I, it's, you're a biostatistics major? Yes, in epidemiology. Wow. Okay, cool. What's your question? Thank you. Um, so COVID-19 is not only a biological disease, it's a social one. Many of us in the public health field have seen examples of overt xenophobia targeting, targeting Asian Americans as a result of this outbreak. And as incidence increases, so too will this discrimination. How do we separate the biological facts of this disease from the racist views that members of this community face? Yeah. David Culver, who's in Shanghai for us. David, I, I just want to, if you have any take on, on this question, um, what are you seeing on the ground in, in China, how people are being treated? This has been going on, Anderson and Sanjay, and, and Adam, to your question, for several weeks. I mean, we've seen this with regards to folks who are of Asian descent, not only uh, in places like in the U.S., but also in Europe. I mean, some of the cases that we've heard have been as extreme as Chinese tourists with a group and being left behind and essentially stranded. And, and then the Chinese government trying to figure out how to get many of those tourists back. Also people being pushed away on the subway. Here in China though, it's also been happening. So it's folks who are from Hubei province or from yeah. Wuhan. So it's happening at the domestic level as well, where people are, are being ostracized. And if you say you pass through that area, for example, taxis will pass you, they don't pick you up. So it, it's a real issue that has gotten the attention of the government and the state media in particular. So in part, to answer Adam's question, what the government here has been doing through certain propaganda outlets as well has been trying to diffuse this and by trying to stress that everyone is going through this together, that this is a collective effort to try to push past. Um, but also they're issuing policy and they're doing so against Western countries like the U.S. The Chinese government, for example, has advised their uh, citizens not to go to the U.S. They're saying, do not travel there because you'll potentially be treated unfairly in the midst of all of this. And so it's rising the ranks to uh, the governmental level, too. And it's a real concern and one that's seeming to only grow as this crisis grows. Yeah. We have another question from uh, Bianca Hunter, uh, a uh, production editor at Guilford Press here in New York. Bianca, what's your question? Um, isn't it true that children often don't show symptoms of illnesses uh, as early as adults? Like they can, you know, they basically can look like they're not sick. And then by the time you start seeking help or whatever, they're really sick, like gravely ill. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, as Sima was mentioning earlier, with this particular virus, um, for, for whatever reason, we don't know. It's good news, though, that the kids seem to be somewhat insulated from this. They can get the infection 
but they're not getting really sick. I think your point is a good one that sometimes with other viruses, uh, the kids will look fine for a period of time. And because they don't have as much reserve, they can suddenly start to decline. And, and it's important. I mean, you know, doctors and hospitals have to keep a close eye monitoring kids for a period of time for that reason. But, you know, we, st- we still don't know why kids are so protective from this, but there might be some clues in that mm. going forward. Is there something that we can learn from kids that we can apply towards adults as well? That's something investigators are, are researching. There's another question we got on social media. Deborah Warren wants to know, should we be concerned about products that arrive via mail since not knowing how long virus can sit on surfaces? Well, we have an idea that this virus might survive on surfaces for a few days, but it depends so much on the particular conditions. You put a virus on a very dry fabric, for example, it may not stay a lot, but you add what we call a micro dot of snot, sorry to sound gross, but suddenly you have that humidity and that moisture that really lets the virus thrive. So it depends on the conditions. Again, this is a new virus. So what about about money? You know, I mean, currency. It can be, and it can be, and the Chinese governments have actually been burning some of the currency to make sure that that contamination isn't causing more disease spread. But, I mean, do we know for a fact that it, it can be on money? It can stay on surfaces like money. You know, cardboard, my understanding, is because it's so porous, mm. it, it, it won't really last there. But money, as, as they mentioned, as Seema mentioned, was, was uh, they were burning it because mm. they were worried that it was contaminated and a source of spread. One of the, uh, the, the tweet questions that I just saw on the wall, and I've seen a couple of these, is people are saying that they're booked for a cruise in a couple of weeks. Uh, should they go? I mean, I know what my answer would be, but I, I'm not a, a health professional, so I'm not going to. Here's, here's the issue. And I'll tell you, like, even if there's not even if you're totally fine, right. if somebody gets sick uh, on your cruise ship, you, you see you saw what happened with the diamond. You see what's happening with this cruise ship off the coast of San Francisco. Most of the people on that ship are fine. Right. But now they may be quarantined. Uh, they're, they're just sort of uh, cruising off the coast of California. They're not coming into San Francisco yet. So you could be wrapped up in it even if you yourself right. physically it, are, are well. It, it's the same thing with traveling. You know, should you go on a vacation overseas? Uh, it's even not so much maybe the threat to you particularly, but just the getting trapped in a place where they suddenly have a quarantine of a particular area that you're staying in. That you, I'm not saying don't go, but that's something you have to take into consideration. Uh, or flight travel, you know, airplane flights are going to be canceled. There are going to be fewer flights. Is it going to be harder to get to I, from? I do refer to cruises as floating hot zones because as an epidemic investigator, you learn that outbreaks are so common on them. If not something respiratory, then the winter vomiting virus, norovirus. It's just so common when you have that many people packed together. One person gets something and it can spread so quickly. You know, with a great accent, even saying the winter vomiting <laughs> virus sounds kind of lovely. Oh, I've had it when I worked in a hospital. It is not no, it lovely. Sure. <laughs> no, I'm uh, sure. Final thought, we have a minute left. I want us to really focus on the emotional contagion part. I don't think it's enough to keep telling people don't panic unless you're saying don't panic because and don't panic but do get prepared. Mm. And public health agencies have to realize diseases do not spread in isolation. They spread alongside rumors and pseudoscience and anti-vaccine messages. Those are just as important to fight. You know, I'm really, we talk about this 80% number of people who are going to probably either have minimal symptoms or no symptoms, but we've also identified 80% of the people in this 80% Room, 80% of the people will likely get it and have no symptoms. No symptoms or, or, or minimal symptoms. symptoms. But it also means that we've identified a vulnerable population. And you know, I, I got to say, I've been thinking about my parents a lot during all this. I mean, they're elderly. They're in that population now. I think, you know, action really can inform how we do things. You know, the idea that that nursing home in, in, in Washington state ended up becoming a place where this virus spread now we know nursing homes are a place that we should focus on. And so how do we how do we protect elderly people and people with pre-existing conditions? That's what we should focus on. All right. Facts, not fear. That's Thanks right. very much, Sanjay. Appreciate it. I want to thank our guests tonight uh, for their expertise. Thank our audience.
If you want to hear the entire town hall, head to the CNN Town Halls and Debates feed on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Tune in Monday for our next episode of Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Send me your questions on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll try to answer them. You can find me at Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And if you think this podcast is useful, please help others find it by rating it and reviewing it in your favorite podcast app. And we're going to be back Monday, so be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode in your feed. And for the most up-to-date information, you can always head to CNN.com. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.